Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing all right wherever you are. I have a great show for you today. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, and Blue Sky X. I don't know what's happening with social media. So... My guest today is Jeff Rickley, author of the debut novel, Someone Who Isn't Me. I think if you look at a psychedelic as a silver bullet that's going to solve it for you, it's not going to do that, you know? But if you look at it as a tool, like you're going to have to do the work anyway, you're going to have to go in and be thorough. But this could be a thing that you use as one tool of many. I think that it could be very helpful and you know part of the you know part of the treatment it was it was a combination it was ibogaine and then dmt smoking dmt with a shaman you know it was the second part of it because they said you know we we found that people were too depressed after taking ibogaine because you really learn a lot about yourself and learning about yourself is not always easy you know what i mean finding out your weaknesses finding out your character defects as the program would call it it can be very painful okay that was jeff rickley author of the debut novel someone who isn't me now available from rose books the inaugural title of this new independent press rose books founded by author and past other people guest chelsea hodson someone who isn't me is the official july pick of the other people book club if you're interested in joining the book club you can go to otherppl.com slash book hyphen club. Someone Who Isn't Me published just yesterday. You can get your copy at rosebooks.co and at select bookstores. Someone Who Isn't Me is a work of autofiction. It is about addiction and recovery. It is about the fallout the interpersonal fallout created by addiction. It is also about, as you just heard Jeff alluding to, the use of Ibogaine in the treatment of opiate addiction. And for those of you who are not super familiar with psychedelics, Ibogaine 
is a very potent, very powerful psychedelic, possibly the most powerful. It is derived from the root bark of the iboga tree in Africa. And interestingly, it has been shown to deliver significant results for many people who are really struggling with opiate addiction, which is, of course, a notoriously difficult form of addiction to shake. And I should mention that as of yet, Ibogaine treatment is not legal in the United States. So in Jeff Rickley's novel, the narrator, Jeff, travels to Mexico as a kind of last resort, seeking the treatment that he needs, trying to find something that will help him break free of his disease. Someone Who Isn't Me is a novel that takes readers into the depths of addiction and then into the surreal, powerfully hallucinatory, and emotionally and spiritually challenging, shall we say, (laughs) space of an Ibogaine trip, which lasts multiple days and is not without its physical risks, which, as you're going to hear Jeff and I talking about, distinguishes Ibogaine among psychedelics, as far as I know. I'm pretty sure Ibogaine is the only psychedelic that carries with it any kind of significant physical risk. There is a risk of death for people who take Ibogaine, somewhere in the one out of 300 people range. So it's not something to trifle with. Whereas by contrast, I should say, other psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, and so on, have almost zero risk of death and are remarkably safe, physically speaking, compared to, say, alcohol, heroin, cigarettes. So it was just a very fascinating conversation with Jeff Rickley. That is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Before we get started, I do want to mention my email newsletter. It goes out once a week. It is free. You can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. The newsletter is straightforward. It is me letting you know about the latest episodes of the show each week. And I also share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. That is it. That's it. It's an easy newsletter. So if you want to hear from me in your inbox once a week, again, you can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Also, if you would like to join the Other People Patreon community, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. It's a sliding scale. And as you move up the scale, you can get merchandise, a book club subscription, all that sort of stuff over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. I count on listener support to help keep this show rolling. So once again, my guest is Jeff Rickley, author of the debut novel, Someone Who Isn't Me, available now in trade paperback from Rose Books. It is the official July pick of the Other People Book Club. Don't forget to go get your copy at rosebooks.co. You may also be aware that Jeff Rickley is an accomplished musician. He is the lead singer and songwriter of the band Thursday and another band called No Devotion. 
And now here he is publishing his first book. So it's very exciting to get to talk with him and to meet him and to catch him at this moment as he celebrates this debut and as we mark the arrival of a new independent press called Rose Books. So let's get to it. Today's conversation. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jeff Rickley and his debut novel, One More Time, is called Someone Who Isn't Me. This book is definitely reliant on the fact that I needed something to do with my time uh, instead of going out on the corner and, and buying drugs. So that's really how I started writing it all, <laughs> was to make myself sit down. Really? Yeah, yeah. No, it was like my therapist was like, get a PlayStation, play some games. I played for like three days and I was like, this is not going to keep my attention. <laughs> this is not going to keep me in the seat. You know what I mean? I'm going to I'm going to stray from this. So. But writing, but writing kept you in your seat. Yeah, writing just was such a, it's such a task. You know what I mean? If you really, you can lose yourself in it, which I appreciate. Anything that puts you in that flow state of like watching the, the days disappear, you know, that's that's good for me. Okay, so you began this book then in the, like the early days of sobriety. Yeah, immediately, immediately after going uh, to get to get treatment. Wow. And in terms of, your beginnings like you the the substance that you had the most issue with was opiates so opiates yeah pharmaceutical pharmaceutical opiates and then heroin which is the trajectory that that's the trajectory that so many people are on these days where they start pharmacologically usually with a prescription that is necessary Mm -hmm. for an injury or a procedure you know that they are recovering from but then you know, they get hooked and then they lose access to the prescription or they have trouble getting pills. And so then they switch to heroin, which they get on the street. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the, there's probably a reason that, that books about opiates are so common right now is that, uh, you know, they were so overprescribed, uh, in the early two thousands that a lot of people found themselves addicted in one way or another to an opiate and, and I think that that progression that kind of goes from, you know, uh, just a normal painkiller prescription for a broken bone or something, and then eventually ends up with needing something so badly that you're buying drugs on the street. For me, uh, I took some detours through Canada and the UK where you can get sort of low dosage opiates over the counter. And so I, for a while, it was just like a hangover opiate. You know what I mean? Like my back hurts because I slipped on the stage opiate you know it's just right. it just they really truly seemed like not such a big deal uh and i you know what's all the fuss about with opiates <laughs> but in this and when did this start for you in your life like when did you first start taking opiates probably the first time i remember taking an opiate i had fallen off a skateboard at like maybe 13 or 14 and broken my wrist and i remember you know i was in a lot of pain i remember the doctor gave me maybe percocet or something and I remember my parents were home for the weekend, like, you broke your wrist, you fool, you know, like, but here, let's watch a movie. And I remember we were watching uh, Malcolm X, you know, for the first time. And I remember just feeling like 
I had such solidarity with the with my Malcolm X and the struggle, be, like, but I was so high on opiates. You know, my I remember my parents laughing at me, being like, "Yeah, you're a white kid from the suburbs, but it's cool that you feel such solidarity." I was like, "No, I get it." <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're like, "You're really high." Wow, but you did not at that point start using in any kind of addictive manner. That was just the intro. Yeah, yeah that's just the first time I realized how much I liked them. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well then, but, but at what point did it tip for you? Because you have, uh, we should mention like you have a, a history as a musician, you work in other, mm-hmm. in another medium with a, a great success. Yeah. And we all know that like that life, the life of a musician and a touring musician in particular is commonly associated with substance abuse. So was that where things started to become problematic for you? Like being on the road or having access to drugs because of being in a band and all that sort of thing? You know, I I haven't found that like the 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 rock star cliche lifestyle is true for all genres of music. You know, I think um, the band that I was in, it wasn't so much that suddenly everybody was partying all the time. It was just kind of I really think one of the big things that makes drugs such a big part of the life of a musician is that every morning you wake up in a new city and it's kind of like the slate is clear to a certain, uh, you know, aspect of, of, of your life. It's just kind of like, well, yesterday was yesterday and today's today. And today, uh, I feel like, you know, I really did hurt my neck last night on stage or like my voice is feeling kind of sore. And, you know, if you have a pain in Cincinnati and a doctor gives you a prescription for it there, and then you have a pain in, you know, Mississippi, it's just, you just keep on restarting that clock on what you're allowed to do. And that, I think adds a certain surreal aspect to your life and it makes it really hard to see. It makes it hard to gauge the progress on your own life. And when you say like, when did it become a problem? It's like, I'm not really sure. I only knew when I realized this is a much bigger problem than I realized it was. You know what I mean? When I, when I thought, Oh, I think I probably developed a problem a long time ago and I'm just sort of understanding that I'm about to buy heroin and, that seems like probably I've had this problem for a while because I have been taking like 80 milligram Oxycontins for years or what, you know, it's just like it, it was so much further along than I kind of realized that it, that it was. That's amazing. And we should say, too, for people listening who might not be might not be familiar or might be wondering the band you, you've played in a lot of different bands. You play music solo, but the band in question is called Thursday, right? Thursday. Yeah. Thursday's probably my most long-standing band you know going for 26 years now that's quite a a remarkable amount of time for a band to get to play together and you know had a a long and storied career billboard top 10 albums getting to tour with the cure and stuff like that you know i mean like big bands that i grew up loving so yeah we've had a great career but certainly not as big as say like the band that i produced my chemical romance you know who fill you know arenas thursday has never been like that like we've never broken through that extra layer of having hit songs and and uh, arena filling crowds yeah but a passionate fan base a very passionate fan base and the ability to make a living playing music which is awesome what an unbelievable thing to get to make a living doing music yeah so you're doing that and then i want to say i read that you realize like this point at which you realize you kind of mentioned it you said i I went and you're like i'm about to buy heroin (laughs) Like that's a moment, right? You've been somebody yeah. who's kind of been taking pharmaceutical drugs, Oxycontin, which I think because they are a prescription and because they are produced by these huge uh, corporations, 
yeah. they can trick you into thinking that they are benign. You know, like how bad could they really yeah. be? You know, I'm taking medicine is essentially what you can tell yourself, especially in the absence of the knowledge that I think we have now, which is that these sure. things are dangerous and are a very slippery slope. But you got to a point where I think you were mugged, right? Mm -hmm. And when you were mugged, the guy took your oxy. Yeah, like I had just sort of rebought like a lot of oxy, like maybe like, well, this is the thing. It's like I had had a prescription and then when that ran out, I was like, but I'm still in pain. It's so expensive to go to the doctor. I don't have health insurance. I'll just, I know a guy who will sell them to me for $5 a pill or whatever, you know, and uh, it seems like a real deal when you're talking about like a, a general doctor and then like a specialist and then it, you know it, it just goes down the line probably also i was lying to myself that you know a doctor would have looked at me and been like all right enough with the oxy they were actually pretty strong you know what i mean right where right. i do remember though the first time that i was given a, a prescription for oxy the doctor said yeah it's a miracle these aren't even addictive <laughs> you know what i mean it's like oh how we know the difference now you know we've got the the uh you know even huge artists who have done protests at the met and stuff like that about about uh, how how uh, dangerous oxy is, but at the time I remember the doctor saying, you know, it's not even addictive. It's it, but the amount of pain that it relieves, and it, I kind of thought the first time I took one, like, <laughs> how could something that feels this good not be addictive? But okay, you know what I mean. It's, it's amazing to me. It's like worth. It's like it's a good lesson that doctors don't know everything. It is so easy, I think, to believe that they do when you're in a situation in particular where you need a doctor, you know, you're injured or you're sick in some way, but there's a lot of gray area in medicine. And there are also different kinds, there are different gradations of doctors. Like some doctors are better than others. There are really bad doctors sure. who don't, don't know what yeah. the fuck they're talking about, you know? Oh, sure. Yeah. I think it is psychologically very important to us to believe that the doctor knows what they're doing. They'll be, I mean, Imagine if we thought there's no one I can turn to in this time of need. You know, that's that's a that's a truly scary thought. Yeah. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And so I'm curious to know about what withdrawal feels like because we hear about this, right? Oh, the withdrawal was so terrible. What what is it actually like to withdraw from opiates? Well, there's an acute stage that's like you're really really sick and throwing up and your muscles are cramping and you can't sleep and it's sort of like terrifying but i think the harder phase for me is the, the post-acute stage where basically the easiest way to describe it is that every stimuli gets converted to a pain stimuli so just everything you know the feel of the air on your skin really like it registers as pain getting in the shower registers as pain uh, standing up pain talking to somebody pain it's just kind of like everything just really really hurts and there's a sort of timelessness to it it just feels like this is how it's going to be forever there's not sort of you know you can get through being sick knowing it's going to be 24 48 at a stretch maybe 72 hours but there's an end point in sight where you're not going to be sick anymore but this the creeping dread of a kind of depressing painful life uh, for all time is what it seems like. That's the hard, the hardest part of withdrawal for me. How long does it last typically? I mean, I've had it last for over three months. That's about as long as I've gotten before I've, I've relapsed again with the help of, you know, Ibogaine and the treatment that I went through. Uh, it, it lifts it pretty quickly, you know, and you're able to see some light at the end of the tunnel and have some hope and 
that really helped me to get into, you know, a 12 step. I really, you know, once I got sober, I took it very, very seriously. And I, I started a 12 step program and I sponsor people and I, you know, I really do all the stuff you're supposed to do. And, and I know what you were saying about it being such serious business and it's my first sponsee, uh, I lost to an overdose and that really hits home when you're trying to help somebody get clean. It's, it's a really unbelievable feeling, you know, to, to have to tell yourself like, I know it's not my fault, but geez, I wish I could have helped them more, you know? Um, so did you, yeah, yourself, did you yourself ever overdose? Did you ever overdose? Yeah, I, I did. I did. Um, never to the point where I was like in the hospital or, uh, you know, they said you didn't almost didn't make it, but yeah, I, I've, I took too much of, a couple times and needed to be kind of like slapped back awake or narcan Narcan, yeah. I want to say I just read that they're putting vending machines with Narcan in Manhattan now or something. Like, that's where we're at. I hope so. It's still so hard to get. Yeah, it should be easier to get because yeah. it's a lifesaver. You know, if somebody's having an opiate overdose, what you just, is it nasal? You squirt it into their nose or now something? Now it is, yeah. Now it's nasal, yeah. There's, they used to have a, like a pen that was almost like an EpiPen. Mm-hmm. But nasal, yeah. Wow. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so you had, I think I read somewhere that you had a low bottom, which is a term used in recovery communities. There's like the high bottom where you start to get sober without things getting too terrible, but you had a low bottom, like shit got rough, right? Yeah, I mean, I hear people with lower bottoms every day, you know, jail, accidentally killed somebody, stuff like that. That's really mm. that's really scary and I feel lucky that I didn't end up in jail and I didn't end up I didn't end up killing anybody. But yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen a lot of people with much higher bottoms, you know. I I knew it was time because my friends told me they were disappointed in me or something like that. It's like, "Whoa." <laughs> okay, that is a high <laughs> bottom for what, I, you know, yeah. for what I was going through and I think in the book there's there's some depiction of of different kinds of low bottoms some some of them real a lot of them more than i'd like to be real is real in the book mm -hmm. um, but yeah you know it's interesting when it comes to addiction how a lot of it can be hidden the degree of a person's issue with substance is often unclear even to people close to them sometimes it's completely like I mean, with opiates a lot of people did not know i'm thinking of my friend's experience like had maybe it like knew like, oh, this is a guy who likes to party and have, a, you know, have a few drinks or whatever, or get into other stuff on the weekends. But it was like he went through this whole process, I think, of becoming a junkie without 
people really knowing. A lot of it was secretive. And I'm wondering, like, how many people around you, I guess your bandmates, I think I read, knew, like, people people knew that you were struggling with this, or did you hide it to a... It took a really long time for people to know. Yeah, I had to get kind of, like, lower on the... I had to start kind of scraping the bottom a little bit for people to realize. And and that's, as somebody who wasn't a big partier, wasn't a big, you know, like, let's go out and rage. Uh, that's what I liked about opiates was that I could kind of keep it to myself and just sort of, uh, you know, do my taxes uh, and enjoy it because I feel great. You know what I mean? Just kind of like <laughs> a little smile on my face while I'm giving interviews to people who like, clearly have contempt for my band or whatever you know i mean there's so many situations you find yourself in on tour that are so uncomfortable and so so strange and i could just kind of be infinitely patient feel like a zen master you know right Uh, (laughs) so i mean that's the that's the allure of opiates right they sort of it's like this it's like this pain-free kind of cloud that you're living on but there are diminishing returns, right? You need more to keep it up, but it's almost like, I feel like with all drugs, the best time is almost always the first time. <laughs> and and yeah. then it slowly diminishes. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, first time was was okay. You know, there's like five, time five, time six, time 10. That was, those, those were the times that were really the best, that kind of the first year. You know, my father is, is a chemist. And so I was pretty, I was, pretty scientific about how I could best keep a schedule of keeping right very very low and then going up a little bit and then up a little more so that it was I would keep feeling the effects uh being heightened for quite a long time you know obviously that ran out at some point where the new good experiences were no longer happening and by the end literally like I couldn't I there was no relief even you know it was like I was in withdrawal and I would do like a hundred dollars worth of heroin and be like why don't I feel better yet? <laughs> this is, how is this possible? You know? So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a strange thing where at first it kind of seems too good to be true. And then at the end you're positive it's too good to be true. You know. And by the end you were doing how, like how much money are you spending on opiates or heroin every day? A couple hundred dollars a day. Yeah. It's expensive. It's, in, it's totally unsustainable. And that's where you get into this sort of you know, what wouldn't I, what, what line wouldn't I cross to get a fix today? And that's, I think that's how jails and institutions start being the norm is because it's like, well, I, I have to, I have to, there's no choice. I just have to do this. Yeah. And <laughs> it's like, good, because the, alter, the alternative of, of going into withdrawal is just intolerable. Yeah. I mean, there was a, a couple of years where it was like every week I'd be in withdrawal. You know what I mean? Like just I'd try every week to quit and fail. And um, I remember the first time I was sharing something and joking at like an AA meeting, somebody said to me, yeah, but I remember when you counted 90 days four times in a year. You know what I mean? It's kind of just like, what are you What are you talking about? Like, you can't get this to save your life. And now you think you know something. As it was a very not, knocking me down to size kind of moment, which are is, is good when you're in recovery, you know, is getting knocked down a few so, times. So, okay. So, but what you're saying is that you tried many times to get sober and it didn't take. Yeah. So like how many times were you, can you even count how many times you tried? No, I mean, years of just trying year, years of only trying. And, and not, and it's not working or you'd go for a little bit and then fall off the wagon, which is not uncommon in recovery. That's common. 
to have a lot of most people who get sober fall off it, you know, at least once or twice. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel really lucky that I made it for how many times I failed. I feel so lucky that I made it on the, on this last go round, you know, which I'm coming up on six years, you know, as they say in the program, God willing. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, Thanks. so let's now pivot to your book, which is very much, I think we've sort of set the stage, but your book is very much about, uh, a guy it's auto fiction. So it's you, but it's a fictionalized version of you. And I, you know, I've written auto fiction, so I know how this works. Uh, it's yeah. very close. It's very close to the bone, but you've, you know, noodled with some stuff and, you know, amalgamated some characters and changed some things around for the purposes of like narrative cohesion and everything. But this is your story and you did not get sober in a lasting way until you tried Ibogaine therapy. So for people listening who don't know what that is, what is Ibogaine? Ibogaine is a psychedelic uh, made, it's, it's an isolate of a, a root bark from a shrub called the iboga shrug. And so you shave the root bark off and you have this psychedelically active uh, substance. And then scientists have isolated the, the most active property and that's ibogaine is the isolate. And um, it, it facilitates like a, a 20 or longer hour trip that is extremely unpleasant very dark and shows you kind of all the things that you've done wrong in your life. It's sort of a life review. So, you know, people call ayahuasca sort of the gentle mother of the psychedelic world. And then Ibogaine is the harsh grandfather as referred to often. So it's a much darker and kind of less pleasant version of something like ayahuasca. Okay. And Ibogaine, isn't it, isn't it have its origins in Africa? Didn't I it is. That? Yes. In uh, Gabon, and the, the Buiti tribe um, okay. were the first ones to discover the effects of it. And so it was used ceremonially, cer ceremonially and religiously. And a lot of people attribute to that why, uh, attribute the, the failure of uh, missionaries to convert the, the tribes in that area of Africa to the efficacy of a spiritual ceremonial uh, plant like Ibogaine, or like I Iboga. And this is not a 100% safe psychedelic in the way that most psychedelics pretty much are. Like I, yeah. it's very, psychedelics are actually, I mean, they can be psychologically harrowing and you yeah. can have a really dark night of the soul, but in terms of like life or death stuff, incredibly safe statistically. Right. But Ibogaine, I want to say one out of 300 people who take that's it right. don't make it. That's right. That's about, that's about the, um, the average of the mortality rate is one in 300. So, you know, statistically significant, let's say, but much safer than heroin. And yeah, and sort of, it is its own kind of uh, branch on the psychedelic tree, so to speak, because it is, it is more dangerous. It, it does change your heart rate. Uh, it lengthens the QT time of your heart, which is like the electrical pulse impulse of your heart. So, yeah, it makes sense that it's talked about less. I mean, the psychedelic communities like MAPS and stuff, they're they're extremely excited about the idea of psilocybin being a treatment for various things. They're extremely excited about MDMA being a treatment for uh, certain kinds of trauma 
therapy, whereas I think they're not super excited to be talking about Ibogaine right now because it is scarier. It's less mainstream. It's something that you don't see the clinical departments of psychology wanting to embrace right now because there are so many really safe treatments like like psilocybin that are right just about ready to be accepted as medicine you know so i think that's uh that's but but for this particular thing for for treatment of heroin addiction it it has its own special unique benefit that nothing else seems to do so yeah that's that is what is so fascinating is that ibogaine treatment for all of its challenges and like the one in 300 chance, which is what a third of a percentage point chance that you're going to die. So it's, it's very small, but it's still statistically significant. It does have an incredible track record of helping people with severe opiate addiction Mm -hmm. get sober. It really does. I don't, I don't know why. And I can tell you that being on the inside of it where I'm not a doctor, I'm not looking at the clinical results. I'm feeling the effects. It was when I came home, people couldn't believe how much I seemed like myself again. And I felt like, Oh, I'm not in, I'm not in need. I'm not in pain. You know what I mean? Like I still am thinking like, well, does this mean I can start over again and and heroin will hit me again? You know, of course there's a part of my brain that's so used to that kind of thinking that I'm thinking it but I didn't need it anymore. And that was, that was huge. You know, do you know, do you, did you read when you were, you know, pondering this option, uh, anything about the efficacy, like, uh, the percentage of people who are struggling with addiction, who do the Ibogaine treatment and then become sober as a result, like how, how consistent is it at, at helping in a, in a lasting way? I, I did read a very promising number it is a number that I'm not sure I believe. I read 70%. And from my own experience meeting people who have taken Ibogaine, I don't believe it's 70%. Yeah. I think that's maybe an exaggeration. Okay. And how did you get to the... <laughs> because people, you know, people approach me all the time now. If they've taken Ibogaine, they're like, I know that you've taken Ibogaine, you know. Um, so... I get a lot of people talking to me about how effective they think it is and, and whether they relapsed after it. And I've met a lot of people who relapsed after I began. Yeah. That's squares though, because I, I got to say as somebody who's taken psychedelics and who has experienced like some therapeutic benefit, but not in a, like there's, I don't know. I, I, the, the results are slippery for me. Yeah. Uh, and I have not taken Ibogaine, but there's a part of me that really loves the idea of integrating psychedelics with psychotherapy. There's a part of me that loves the idea of psychedelics as a spiritual accelerant or something that can help you maybe make progress faster in terms of mm-hmm. grappling with uh, psychological issues or spiritual understandings. Like I'm sort of down with that. But then there's another part of me that gets kind of cynical and it's like, you know what? This is, there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut to this stuff. Uh, you got to do the work, you know, maybe it can sort of give it a little bit of a boost, but you got to do the work. And yet here I am talking to you and you went down, did I began therapy? You, you felt pretty much immediately better and more like yourself mm-hmm. and have been sober for six years since the treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that contradicts my little cynical, you know, dialogue or monologue with myself is like, 
this stuff like psychedelics actually are medicine that can treat extremely difficult health problems yeah i i think you know i think if you look at a psychedelic as a silver bullet that's going to solve it for you it's not going to do that you know but if you look at it as a tool like you're going to have to do the work anyway you're going to have to go in and be thorough but this could be a thing that you use as one tool of many i think that it could be very helpful and you know part of the you know part of the treatment it was it was a combination it was ibogaine and then dmt smoking dmt with a shaman you know it was the second part of it because they said you know we we found that people were too depressed after taking ibogaine because you really learn a lot about yourself and learning about yourself is not always easy you know what i mean finding out your weaknesses finding out your character defects as the program would call it it can be very painful to see it especially if you're good at repressing things which i think you know drug users tend to be pretty good at repressing things painkillers you know <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah i don't want to feel that so i won't you know is is sort of uh, a good shorthand for <laughs> using those kinds of drugs um but the the experience that i had with you know dmt is very you know when i read when I read your book, I felt like, oh, this is very similar experiences he had, you know, um, which was with, I think it was psilocybin, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, mushrooms. Um, you know, that the ego death, total transpersonal experience, you know, unity with God, whatever you want to call it. Uh, lifting, the, my favorite one is lifting of the veil of consciousness. That was my favorite. You know, the the artificial layer of what we perceive the world as pulling that away and, and experiencing a kind of pure being. I found that to be an incredibly liberating experience and one that I often want to experience again, but I had a, a, a psychological therapist who you have to sign up for in order to even do the treatment. You have to say, I'll, I'll do six months of aftercare and I'll pay for that too, because it's you're too vulnerable when you leave you know what i mean for you to just go out into the world and just oh, have yeah. fun right um, right and the therapist said something to me that i haven't forgotten which is you knocked on a door and you got an answer are you sure you want to keep knocking <laughs> and i was like that makes a lot of sense to me you know i might not like what i get next time and right now i've gotten something that's incredibly spiritually useful to me uh it's changed the way i look at everything in my life like literally there's nothing that hasn't been changed by this experience and i'm i'm on a path i'm on a good path now maybe this is that's it <laughs> i don't yeah, need to keep going down no, the same road no because i mean like here's here's what i'm hearing and like it's worth underlining is that i began is incredibly powerful the experience that it delivers is like this is the thing i love about psychedelics is i i characterize it to myself as like this is non-negotiable like you take that pill <laughs> you are going to have like an unbelievable experience. Like it's non-negotiable, like it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But, and for you, it did take like the, the Ibogaine treatment really did deliver you to a new and better place and put you on more stable ground to maintain sobriety. Inarguable, it sounds like. But you also did talk therapy for six months after, and I'm assuming it might even continue past that six months. Mm -hmm. You also embraced the 12-step programs that you talked about and all of the, the rigor 
and daily practice that that entails and community that that brings you uh, and the way that you are now sponsoring people. So it's, it's fair to say that Ibogaine changed your life and set you on this path, but it alone is not enough. Mm-hmm. Like that's the, a really important point. You know, Absolutely. yes, yes, it worked. And yes, you fall into the percentage of whatever people who do Ibogaine treatment, they kick heroin, they kick opiates. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'll pose it as a question to you. Do you really think that you would be sober right now if you had only done the Ibogaine and hadn't done all this other stuff? No, I think I'd probably <laughs> to give an extremely dark answer to, to a, a fairly nice question. I think I'd probably be dead honestly, if I had just relied on Ibogaine, because, uh, there were, you know, there were a couple times in the first year where I was like, nah, I'm okay now. Maybe I can do cocaine. Maybe I can, you know, maybe I can try something else. <laughs> what else does life have to offer me? And, uh, and being in a program that there was as zero tolerance as the 12 step program, it's what I needed. You know what I mean? I needed, I needed really to you know, there is something my sponsor said to me is like, you only, you only have to change one thing, everything, <laughs> you know, that's all, that's all your life. That's the only thing you have to change. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that voice is pretty sinister, isn't it? Like that voice. It's like, I'm okay now. Like I can do that. You know, yeah. yeah, that's a, it's a sly, sneaky voice, you know, and can happen in a, a variety of contexts, not just in the context of addiction, but just the ways that we can fool ourselves. You know, that's one of the things about addiction that's gotta be so destabilizing is that like you think you have a handle on it or you think you're just using it casually or you, you think, and then years go by and suddenly you realize like, oh shit, I'm way out. I think you've even put it this way. Like I'm way out over the cliff's edge and I had no idea. Like the human capacity to fool ourselves is pretty extraordinary. That was a lot of why I wanted to write a novel when I was done. I had this very clear representation under the effects of Ibogaine of identity being this kind of shell game that we think of ourselves as this one person who makes decisions. But what I really saw was like a collection of different people inside with competing stories who would sometimes gang up on each other and say like, well, we'll tell him that because we're not actually addicted and that he could go without for a few days, that means that he can keep using because it's not really the problem that he thinks it is. And then when you're sick, it's like, well, now tell him that you need the drugs, that you can't live without them. You know, so there are all these different stories that would come from different voices. And under the influence of Ibogaine, I saw this, uh, the, that there, that there were like a bunch of us in here is kind of how I sometimes think of it. And I thought, well, wow, what a great, what a great device this could be for a novel is this, uh, this, this idea of identity as this collection of different points of view who could all be working against each other. And it really like, you know, there's a reason that I wanted to write a novel and not a memoir as I thought, Oh, I could really use this to make a character like a, a shifting, shifting sands, a bunch of fractured mirrors and make this thing all kind of come at it at itself. I could use time and tense and I could use different narrative perspective to animate these different versions of a character who believes he's one thing, but actually he is, you know, a collection of things. And I could also use other people's dialogues to show the reader that the guy who's narrating the 
book doesn't know what's going on either. And in that way, I could do like a kind of Don Quixote thing where he's like a fool. You know, he's the only one who doesn't see himself clearly is this fool who thinks he knows everything. And that just, I just thought, oh, this is going to be a lot of fun. I've got a story I can tell now. You know what I mean? It was like, I'm not going to write a memoir. I'm not going to try to explain to people that that identity is this complex, you know, uh, persona-like French New Wavey thing you know uh, instead i'm gonna have fun and play with it and make and make art out of it because that's really the only spiritual practice that i've ever had in my life is trying to make art you know through music as the primary function of my life but but it's still something that i just love i can't get away from it it's just it's my life is like what can i make out of this you know and through making stuff out of it i go back and say oh yeah that's that's interesting maybe that's how i feel maybe this is how I, i get to try on a lot of different feelings and it doesn't matter some of these feelings are true and some are false and it doesn't doesn't matter it's art and then later on i can bring that back to my therapist and uh my therapist likes to say for a decently smart guy you don't know anything about your emotions which i think is so funny considering most of the world thinks that i'm an emo singer you know what i mean right. <laughs> so it's so, like come on man i sing for thursday what are you talking about i don't know my feelings <laughs> right well but like and it's interesting too i think this kind of uh contradiction in temperament well, I don't know how uncommon it is, but for a, ro- a lead singer, rock star guy, you have this writerly temperament, right? You right. talked about it a little bit earlier with respect to your choice in drugs. Like you're a guy who liked opiates and gravitated to opiates because you could sort of go off on your own, read a book on the bus, mm-hmm. you know, take a Oxycontin. You're not yeah. the guy who wants to be like the life of the party, you know, doing a bunch of blow or whatever. Like yeah. you're very content, sort of got that like introverted bent, but like you have both of these right. things. You can also front a band, but you're, you're also kind of inward and writerly. And Yeah. That's more my temperament in general, but you know, it's like, like you said, like there are, there are different versions of all of us and all my friends who know me from real life first and then later come to see my band they are shocked. They can't believe that that I'm capable of transforming into somebody who is seemingly unfiltered or aggressive or unafraid, you know, all these things that I try to, uh, well, I don't really try. I just kind of, I open up and it just comes out at that moment because of the music. It's really hard for some of them to, to bring that into a whole picture of who I am because they're used to me being a sweeter guy. And one of the very early producers of Thursday of the band is somebody who was a huge mentor for me and who I converted. I flipped his gender and made him into the pitch doctor in the book. Uh, she's sort of a, a tough talking New Jersey producer in the book. He said early on, because I had become known for a while as tone Jeff because I was tone tone deaf. I couldn't sing. I was such a terrible singer and I've learned to sing since then, but early on I was a horrible singer and uh he would just say it doesn't matter you're not a singer you're a writer with a microphone like you write these beautiful songs and so that was something that i i think i internalized very early on okay i'm a writer with a microphone (laughs) you know sure sure so just to continue this narrative thread which you you know you travel in the book as well you get to a point with substance abuse where you sort of hit bottom and you you're desperate for relief and you decide to try ibogaine therapy or treatment that's a big step so like how did you hear about it i know you can't do it in the united states you have to go out of country to do this right i mean it's a 
you go to Mexico in the book, he goes to Mexico. I don't know if you went to Mexico, but yeah. I think I've actually seen, I want to say like on vice or something, a sort of like documentary news, uh, program that kind of went down to, you know, Baja where they do this and showed people going through the, the treatment. And it's like, it's, it's intense. So can you just, yeah, dis- I watched that. Okay. <laughs> I watched that documentary before I went, I was like, Oh boy. Was it the place that you went? Was it the same place? I am not sure if it was the same one from the documentary, but it was the same one. Like Tim Ferriss had an episode where he talked to, you know, the guy who ran the the clinic that I went to. So I, you know, I did a bunch of research before I went and actually the friend that turned me on to it, who was also this character in the book, he said, look, there's, you know, a year before I went to get treatment, he tried to get me to go. Um, and I think it's because he lost another close friend to addiction and he just wanted he wanted it not to happen again. So he was trying to get me and He said, I know a guy who can do it in New York, but you'll have to do it illegally, like in a hotel room, or you can go to Mexico and do it like legit in a hospital and like have people actually give you real medical care. And so I watched like the vice documentary. I was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> That's doesn't look like, doesn't look like a party, right? No, it looks horrible. Why would I do that? And then, you know, I told some of my friends and they're like, don't do that. You know, the friends that knew. And by the time I left, all I can say is that all my friends were like, yeah, you should probably do it. You know, like, what do you got to lose, man? You're not doing, you're not doing good, you know? And that's kind of like a depressing thing is when all the people who thought that's crazy, you can't do that are like, yeah, just whatever it takes, just try something else. You know, I don't know if this will work either, but like, try something else, man. Like you're not you anymore. You know, that's a really hard thing to hear from people. It's like, you're not you, you're somebody else now. And we don't. We miss, we miss like the person that you used to be It's very hard to hear. Especially, yeah, especially from like your closest pals. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. that's rough. And or like your mom, you know, or your, yeah, or your mom or your, stuff. or your love interest. I mean, this novel is very much a love story. I feel like, like that is, that is the kind of driver of the narrative ultimately is mm. the separation of this couple. And then they're coming back together at the end. I don't know. Like that, I always notice that. I'm always like, whenever I'm reading a novel, I'm sort of paying attention to like the overarching structure. And like, in the absence of that storyline, I don't know if there is like a binding thread, but that was what it was for me. I'm sure that's what it was for you. And, you know, just so, I mean, in the book, he basically gets on a plane, strung out, then he gets high on the plane, (laughs) uh, (laughs) finds out he's got some extra drugs, you know, and then you know, you, you land in Mexico, people come meet you at the airport, like just like in terms of what this treatment entails for people who are at this uh, stage of addiction where it's really acute. They're basically at bottom. They get off the plane in Mexico. Somebody meets you there, takes you to the ho- to the hospital or takes you to the treatment center. Like, so it's kind of door to door, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think they have some reservations about asking drug addicts to cross international borders without help. Right. Because, you know, that's probably going to end up in a lot of drug smuggling, let's be honest. You well, know and I mean? it's, it's easier to get opiates in Mexico. You can go to right. the drug, you can go to the drugstore and get opiates. I think, yeah. I, you know, I want to say I have, I mean, my friend used to do that. I think he used to go down to like Cancun or whatever and load up. Like that stuff is uh, part of it. Yeah. So it's good that somebody meets you. And then 
you go to the clinic and this is really just a curiosity for me. Like they, do they do like a medical evaluation of you? Do you have to do like a cardiogram or whatever it's called to? Yeah. They have you run on the treadmill with heart monitors. They take all your blood work and see how much you actually have in your blood. And, you know, there were people who came down with me that they were like, yeah, you didn't disclose that you're also doing math. Like that takes longer to get out of your blood. And because this is a stimulant, like we can't let you take it for a week. So like we'll put you in the beach house for a week to dry out if you want. And we'll keep monitoring you and tell you when you're safe to do it. But you can't do it this round. You know what I mean? There was a lot of that kind of stuff. There wasn't anybody who is medically unsound to to be treated. Uh, everybody that, you know, got stress tested uh, was was in fighting condition to do it. Um but yeah, it was it was a very intense. We're there for we were there for like seven days before we took it or something. I kind I condensed the timeline of the book a lot just because oh, right. I wanted to I wanted people to feel experientially like the the book is in the present tense. It doesn't leave as much room for this happened and this then this happened. It's kind of like you just got to keep having life come at you. So I really tried to squeeze the whole timeline of the book into a much smaller. Uh, place, which, you know, these are the the kinds of things that I got to learn about uh, novel mechanics, you know, like character arcs and time. And, and, you know, that was the joy for me of getting to write a novel, you know, as opposed to basically, you know, songs or like little poems, you know, little prose pieces that you have to fit everything into three minutes. And, um, but not bad training, not bad training for writing a novel in some ways, like that compression and learning how to distill complicated feelings and you know even storylines down into a a song probably yeah useful yeah although i think you can get because i've been doing it for so long you can become over reliant on devices that work better in poetry than they do in in uh in in prose and and my agent kept saying to me you have to learn decompression you have to learn what it means to stretch something out instead of hit, having the whole image hit all at once like how do you make that last and so all those things I found incredibly satisfying to and frustrating, of course. You know, there were times where I just thought, I, I actually might be stupid. You know, I might be finding out now that I'm stupid. You I, know? Have, I have that feeling all the time. I, it's a recurring theme for me. But yeah, I get it. I'd ask somebody for a reading list and they'd send me a thoughtful reading list of, you know, I'd say, I want to learn about architecture and they'd send me like five things, but from a poetic angle or whatever, you know, they'd send me five different things. And then their casual message to me would, would hit me as something more beautiful than I had written in seven drafts of a 300 page novel. And I'd think, Oh, I'm going to expose myself as a fraud, as a dilettante who doesn't know what he's doing. You know, up till now, people like because uh, people would say to me, but you're like one of the most literary singers I know. And I'd say, well, yeah, it's a lot easier to be a literary singer of a rock band than, it, you know, now I'm put in with National Book Award winners and and MacArthur Grant, you know, fellow fellows and stuff like that. Like now they're going to learn that I'm actually not that smart. You know? <laughs> and that was my constant feeling of writing this book was like, wow. I really respect these other writers. I'm I'm going through novels and and learning how they did their mechanics and it's like I loved this book and now I'm learning it's much better than I thought it was. You know, that was my as learning was just like everyone is so brilliant. Like I have such respect for novelists. Like this it's is hard it's so hard, hard to it's hard to write a book, right? I mean, it's, it's like so hard. Yeah, it's uniquely hard, I feel like. And uh 
I usually I think the trajectory tends to be in reverse where you have artists in other media trying their hand at music. I mean, there's like the whole mm. cliche of like the actor who wants to like Russell Crowe fronting his rock yeah. band or Bruce Willis or, you know, that that is usually the way things move. It is not as common for, say, a front man in a rock band to put himself through the hell of writing a novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had somebody say, like, I congratulate you on on finding the one uh, career path that's more thankless than being in a, you know, that's lower paid and higher rejection rate than being in a rock band is, like, I got it. You're going you for a whole new world of pain. Congrats. I was going to say, glutton for punishment. Glutton for <laughs> <Yeah>. punishment. <laughs> yeah, I am. But I just love, I just... You know, I'm just, um, I try and embrace the philosophy of staying an amateur at something for your whole life. I just love, I love music. I love novels. I read a couple novels every week. It's like, to me, that's, I'm living the dream. You know, like I had a, a major publisher send me a free book this week because, you know, I've been posting books on my Instagram and I thought like, this is it. I yeah. figured out how to get a free book. You know right. what I mean? Like I did it. You've arrived. You've arrived. <laughs> I've arrived. Yeah. So... Let's, uh, I want to talk, I'm sure people are wondering, you know, like you, we got to the point where you're at the clinic, you go through the stress test, they're kind of checking your vitals and making sure you're in fighting shape, as you said, to be able to do the Ibogaine therapy. So after that first week, they then what, they give you a pill? <laughs> like where, how do you get the Ibogaine? Yeah. So we leave the, like the beach house or whatever, uh, the place where they're kind of letting us rest up and sort of like preparing us psychologically and like waiting for the results of our medical stuff. And they bring us, then they bring us from the beach house to the clinic and the clinic is, is, you know, they, they run an IV and they hook us to the heart machine and they put us in a, a hospital bed with like a weighted blanket. So we don't try to get up because you can't walk, you know? Um, and then they bring the first little cup. And Wait, the first you, little you can't cup. walk when you can't walk when you're on Ibogaine. Yeah, no, uh, the major symptom that people experience is called ataxia, which sounds like, that sounds, yeah, it sounds like a symptom. No, it's like a complete rewiring of the world where, like, you try to lift your arm up and instead your foot wiggles, you know, and, like, all, it's just you're completely, you can't control your body anymore, and even your sense of up and down kind of flip to the point where everything's spinning and nothing feels real, it's just... It, it is like being on a roller coaster, only the roller coaster is your body. So it's, they try and keep you in the bed because once you start trying to move, it's, it's not good. So they, they prepare you by doing that and then they bring you the cup that has the test dose and that's to make sure you're not allergic to it. You know, so rather than like get you, you know, way down that road, let's bring you a little tiny bit and see if your body rejects it, you know, and then we can say, this isn't for you. You know, and I imagine that's, they're trying to cut down on that one in 300 people dying, you know? So it's like, make sure the heart's okay. Make sure this is okay. Make sure you're not allergic to the drug itself, you know? How powerful is the testos? I mean, is it is it powerful enough to be psychoactive? Are you like, oh, I'm tripping or is it just minor? No, I didn't, I didn't notice anything. Okay. I mean, it takes a really long time for psychedelics to work for me. So I was kind of like, all right, I'm not feeling anything, but you never know. It might be a couple hours away, you know? And then they brought... The flood dose you know after they've they've said okay your heart rate's going up it's good that means like you're feeling it your heart rate's up but you're not having whatever their gauge for 
you know, you're allergic to it is. I don't know what that gauge is, but they said, okay, you're good to take the flood dose now. And that flood dose is like, instead of one pill, it's like six pills in a cup. And you think like, this seems like a lot, you know? And then after I took it, I had the slow reaction to it. Like I have a slow reaction to everything. And so they brought me more and said like, this will tip you over. Make sure you don't get stuck. Cause there is a danger if you don't take enough psychedelics, you'll be sort of in an uncomfortable place where you're like really resisting being in the trip and you resisting or trying to hold on to control is going to be a very uncomfortable experience for you. So it's better to just knock you into outer space and then say like, see you soon. You know what well, I mean? I mean, that's a, this is a, this is an interesting point and it's something that Terrence McKenna used to say. He used to always just say, you're not taking enough which is an odd thing to say when someone's talking about what a lot of people consider to be a drug. You know, I don't know if classifying psychedelics as a drug in the common way that mm-hmm. we understand them is maybe accurate that, you know, they mm-hmm. are more medicinal or spiritual. Like they, they are wild. These substances. Mm-hmm. I mean, for people who have not tripped, it's impossible. And we're going to get to this. It's, it's like so hard to describe what they are like. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, is incredibly hard. And it, but it is also incredible the experience that you have when you're yeah. on it, like, especially when you take a really powerful high dose and you are like blasted into outer space, as you said, mm-hmm. uh, something less than that, like you say, you might have your inhibitions might remain or that inner resistance might be able to push back against the psychedelic in a way that causes like a uncomfortable tension, but past a certain dose resistance is futile (laughs) yeah right exactly and that is better you know the doctor told me there's you know and this is in the book too there's there's a treetop effect and we want to make sure that you take enough to get out from under the canopy of the tree and get into the air where it's nice and clear down below there's roots and leaves and branches and things to get yourself in a mess with like let's get you out of that and I thought that that was a really interesting thing. And I, I see where they're coming from because I recently talked to somebody who took DMT, which was the second thing that I took and had a very bad experience. And I said, did you have the experience that you thought you were dying and you were trying to not die? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, I had that for about a minute. And then I had to say like, okay, I guess if I'm dying now, I'm dying. And as soon as I accepted whatever was happening to me, it was like I was free. Life was beautiful, you know. Well, that's, but I mean, that's really the, like one of the key lessons of maybe life in general, but especially like a psychedelic experience is that like, uh, don't resist what is happening. If you don't resist, if you look right at, even if it's something horrible, like you're getting some visual of like, you know, what is the Hunter Thompson line? Like your grandmother crawling up your leg with a knife in her teeth, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like, just be like, hi grandma. You know what I'm saying? You sort of have to take that attitude. And if you do then whatever threat you might be, you know, experiencing or imagining, it dematerializes very quickly, you know, and it becomes less scary. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to get fooled into, you know, your natural inclination. And when presented with horrifying stuff is to resist, <laughs> you know, yeah. but these experiences are going to show you difficult stuff. And maybe I began in particular, it's going to show you tough stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, there is enough experience with different kinds of psychedelics that there are teachers that, you know, some people call it practice dying, you know, and that is, that is useful, you know, like I've always been afraid of death and to my own detriment, you know, to the the point where it becomes a preoccupation of mine and getting to a point where 
I realize it's something that's going to happen to me because it happens to everybody. And that I just, that that means that it's common. It's, we all have to do it at some point. I'll have to do it. That has made my life uh, completely different. You know, uh, I, I really love life now. And even the idea that there's sort of, that there's always going to be life somewhere, I find incredibly comforting. You know, it doesn't have to be me and my ego and my like organization of who I think I am, but instead I can just love that I get to experience this for a while. I get to know Liza, you know, who's the love interest in the book and my actual real life partner as well. I get to know her and love her and I get to know my band members and love them for the time that I'm given to love them. And that's like, it's great, you know, but someday it'll all be gone. And the psychedelics really, they really like taught me that lesson very well. (laughs) I think, yeah. And I have in my experience, like it was like, it was surprisingly like casual. Hmm. It was like, Oh yeah. Cause I died, you know, like in the, in the depths of the experience, it sounds so crazy to talk about, but I was like in a grave when like people were dying around me and I was dying and I was just like, it's all right. Like, it's all right. There's a very, there's a gentleness to that, like epiphany. Like, this is what happens. It's, it's okay. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, I can't really extrapolate on, on it much more than that, you know, but it definitely helped me. I, I don't know if I'm fully without fear of death. Uh, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know if any, I don't know if anybody is. No, of course not. Like if yeah. there's suddenly like a great white shark bearing down on me, I'm probably <laughs> gonna, you know, f- fail the test. <laughs> yeah. I think a healthy fear of death is like, you need it. You know what yeah. I mean? A healthy fear. I, I was definitely tipping into the unhealthy fear of death where it was like really making it so I couldn't live. And, um, you know, I thought you, it was such an interesting thing. I think we wrote about our psychedelic experiences very differently, but when I read yours, I felt an incredible kinship and closeness to like, wow, we really both had that same experience of like, okay, there it is. I get it. it. Right. Thank you. You know what I mean? Like message received. This is beautiful. Like, and that also like, (laughs) you know, you were talking about, in your book, wanting to wake up and be like, remarkable, <laughs> you know, like I get that. Like, yeah, yeah it's, it's just like, oh, there it is. You know, the aha moment, like really, it really is like, oh, okay. That's, that's what I was missing. And, uh, and that makes it incredibly hard to write about, you know? And I have yes. read a lot of people where I've been like, I don't think I understand why you wanted to do it that way, but I don't think that was a good way to do it. And I've read some people who really get to the essence of it. And I really struggled with it. You know, and people would send me Michael Pollan writing in the New York Times about how to characterize a trip and how to, you know, his mechanics of like, how do you say the unsayable thing that we all come to learn? And, you know, there's all these different, there's problems of it. You know, how do you, one of the things that you experience very early on in the trip is language breaking down. Right, (laughs) right, right. So how do you write about it without language, right? Uh, I always have people say like, what's the hardest part of your book to write by far and away the psychedelic part of it, uh-huh. uh, precisely for the, you know, those reasons. And so your book, the way that it's structured is you sort of like follow the Jeff character to the bottom, you know, where he finally decides to fly to Mexico and try Ibogaine. So you sort of see his life come apart. You see his relationship come apart. You see addiction, get the best of him. Mm-hmm. And then you're in Mexico and like you say, you compress and suddenly the Ibogaine trip starts. And two things that I thought of as I was reading your book that may or may not surprise you, uh, Charles Dickens and Lewis Carroll. <laughs> uh, 
uh, there's something like a Christmas carol almost about the Ibogaine experience where like the ghost of heroin passed, you know, like comes, yeah. to, comes to pay a visit. I mean, that really is kind of what it's like. You have a dark night of the soul and you're sort of visited by these different versions of yourself. Like you say, it gets crowded in here. You know, you sort of have to kind of, <laughs> you sort of have to meet yourselves, you know? Yeah. And then Lewis Carroll, it's like Alice in Wonderland, you know, it's like through mm. the, you know what is it i forget that through story the glass, yeah. through the looking glass yeah you yeah. got to go down in to this realm psychologically that is so surreal and yet so deeply real mm. and it is very difficult to as i experienced it i mean you can tell me what it was like for you but i'm imagining you're going to agree it's a huge challenge to try to depict that accurately without losing the reader or making them like eye roll like what is this guy on and it's like well yeah. I'm on Ibogaine. <laughs> the strongest one. That's yeah. what I'm on. <laughs> yeah, right. But how do you, you know, I think you're probably thinking to yourself as you're sitting at the keyboard, how do I bring a casual reader along who has not taken Ibogaine or maybe any psychedelic? Mm-hmm. You know, that's part of it. You don't want to write a book that's only for people who are like psychonauts who are, you know, doing ayahuasca ceremonies every quarter or whatever, you know? Yeah, that was that was the big challenge. I mean... I start so when the book started, it immediately just jumped. When I first started writing the book, I should say, it immediately jumped into the psychedelic flashes. I started with like the blood of the broken nose, all that stuff. That was where I decided, oh, I'm, I'm going to start here. I've had this experience; it was life changing, you know. And it took me a long time to kind of find my way to to what the book would be. And what I had to really do was was convert the experiential into a classical story forms. That's what I really, I really thought I need to find a structure that can bear the weight of one third of my book being a dream, basically. Right. Like they say, you know, don't tell people your dreams. And I'm like, I've decided to tell people my dreams. Like, am I, this is a terrible idea, right? I, I mean, I feel like this is a, like nobody's taken Ibogaine. It's like so uncommon. Like, I really feel like I've got a story here. If I can figure out the, the container to put it in, you know, and I, I love novels. They're like, you know, I, I don't read nonfiction almost ever. I just love novels. I love the form. I love, I think fiction is like one of the truest things that you can make. It, it reveals so much about human, you know, being human that nonfiction just doesn't catch for me. Um, so I thought, how do I do that? You know, because every time I start trying to write what it was actually like in my Abigail trip. It's just messy. It's gross. It doesn't make any sense. It's nonlinear. It, it's just 24 hours of like chaos. Like I can't do this. You know what I mean? That's, it's a horrible thing. And I remember talking to my agent, Monica, uh, like Monica Woods, Monica Woods, who past, past guest on this program. Oh, I love her. She's so amazing. She's such a good friend and a great agent. And she just said, you know, you can write a very experimental niche book that way if you want. And people will pick up kind of where they want to and they'll leave you where they want to. And I didn't want to do that. So I started looking at, you know, okay, I could do like an Odyssey thing maybe. And no, that doesn't, everybody does the hero's journey. I can't do the hero's journey. Like, what am I going to do? And when I, I was looking through forms. I found Dante's Inferno again, and I remembered that my uh, thesis advisor in college was Miguel Aldrin, and one of his closest friends was Amira Baraka, who 
when Amir Baraka was still Leroy Jones, wrote The System of Dante's Hell. And I thought, yeah, I guess he really, it's a pretty versatile skeleton, this Dante's Inferno, you know, because it's got all these archetypal forms in it. It's got the threes, you know, and everybody loves three. I grew up Catholic, so like three is a big number for me anyway. Uh, as did um, I. I grew up Catholic, so. <laughs> so it never really leaves you fully, you know, it's always there in the back informing yeah. things and telling you you're bad. Um, but uh, so I started saying, okay, okay, I'm going to write a little tiny bit in the beginning, and that's going to be the character lost in this forest. You know, he's lost in a deep forest, and that's, that's going to be this little tiny sliver that I do at the beginning. And that's how the book started. There was a little sliver of the bottom, of hitting bottom in the beginning, and that was going to be my forest section. And then I was going to jump into these three sort of subdivided infernos, and then I was going to go into purgatory, and paradise was going to be recovery. And so that's how I started, you know. And as I got further down the line, I realized that to support a, a huge dream se sequence that was going to be like 100 pages long, I actually needed a lot more reality first or else it just wasn't hitting. You know, it didn't. You, why would you care about this character when all you're learning about him may be fake? So I realized, you know, and through Monika telling me that I also, you know, was not doing a good job yet, I kept on going back and adding to that first section, that forest, until finally I realized, no, my book is still threes. It's still this divine comedy, but there is no paradise. Paradise is something that either will or won't come later because this is real life. You know what I mean? Maybe paradise even seems made up. So I have to leave my character at the end in this kind of purgatory it has the possibility of being a paradise if we make it a paradise. And that's kind of like, once I had that structure, I started seeing, okay, the more I rely on like very classic story forms, the more this is going to take the shape of a story instead of like this crazy thing that happened to me. And um, so, yeah, Dickens is in there. And, you know, even the Martin Shkreli character says, like, you don't even understand Dickens. You know, you're named after Chaucer and you don't understand. You think I'm like Jacob Marley or whatever, like, uh, you know, or you think I'm Scrooge. It doesn't even make sense, you know. So, you know, the further I went into those forms, the more the weight rested in a comfortable way where I could say, OK, you're telling people 100 pages of it what is essentially a dream. But actually, it's a story. And what's a story? A story can be a dream, too, as long as it's not just like your your boring old real life you know as long as this real life is not just a real life it's a story you know it's got a dramatic arc you wrote in a you know i wrote in a a, a climax in the in the book and like i began trip didn't have a climax you know it just had a bunch of pictures that i had to figure out later on and so uh that was the fun of the story really was like making making a, a story sense out of this like sort of extended nightmare that i <laughs> went on yeah well i mean let me ask you because i think one of the characteristics of all psychedelic experiences is how slippery they are after the fact and how fleeting they are and so mm -hmm. you know you can have what is just feels like this thunderous wild pivotal like deeply meaningful experience and within 24 hours it's gone like the memories of it are so hard to hang on to so I think integration after any trip, whether you're doing it in a therapeutic mode or trying to kick, you know, heroin or whether you're just somebody who's trying to like, I don't know, better themselves or have, have a big experience, like doing some sort of integrative work after the fact is useful. Mm. I have to believe that at this Ibogaine treatment center, they have like a structured integration process after you come down because I don't understand how you could have possibly written about it so vividly in the absence of that.
right? Mm. I mean, in the absence of having some kind of like immediate post-trip integration, either writing stuff down or talking it out, a lot of it would be lost, right? Absolutely, yeah. I and, and you know, to be fair, as is the nature of memory, like I remember my trip now in a way that conforms a lot closer to the way that I wrote about the trip. You know, uh, a lot of the actual details, I just kind of remember the shape of them that they were like sort of brown and dirty. That was sort of, this is sort of like a glowing, smoldering effect to the proceedings. That's kind of like the nature of what I remember uh, if I really think back to it. But, um, you know, what I remember more than anything is they give you like three days after the Ibogaine to come back to yourself. And, you know, the first day you can't walk at all. So it's like it's like basically like nurses coming and bringing you soup and orange juice and just just trying to help you kind of like cope with the fact that you're really sad that you've seen all the damage you've caused in people's lives and all this stuff that's so uncomfortable to see. And that's the first day back. No picnic. Second day back they try to kind of start to integrate you into your life again. But that even that was so incredibly painful for people. I remember the people that I was there with were trying to leave and were like, what kind of a place am I in that you would do that to me? Like that was so horrible, you know, uh, other people being like borderline suicidal, just like so beside themselves and in there to their credit, you know, they would kind of treat you like spa day. They'd like, give you manicures and pedicures and like, like massage you when you couldn't really move around to get your like blood flowing again. They'd take you out on a horse and you'd go through the countryside, which to me, I could barely sit on the horse. I was so shaken up. But, <laughs> just like a rag, like a rag doll. <laughs> just like. Yeah. Like literally my horse, like I had so little control that my horse jumped into the Creek and like, I was soaked and my shoes, like when I went to the airport, like my shoes were still wet from when this horse jumped in the Creek. Um, so it was kind of like, yeah, it was, it was a pretty, it was, it was pretty dark. And I really do think the DMT actually really helps you kind of come back and have like a little more color in your cheeks. You know what I mean? Just kind of like a little more, uh, a hope for, for your own life to be like a good place. And, um, so wait, I want to ask you, cause like, this is a yeah. really, this is an interesting part of the process is that you go through this incredibly intense Ibogaine trip. Yeah. At what point did they, cause for people listening, DMT is typically smoked. Is that right? Yes. Okay. We, did. we smoked it. Yes. Yeah. You smoke it and it's like a, it's like basically like strapping yourself to a rocket ship. Yeah, and exactly. the, the, the trip lasts what, like 15 minutes, like 10 to 15 minutes even? I Not think even. ours was 20 because, um, so there are two different forms of DMT and we took the much more rare form, which is the organic compound, which is made from like a toad's venom. Uh, there's, there's like the more, a controlled version of it, which lasts about 15 minutes. Ours lasts about 20. Okay. That's right. And so yeah. just to, and just to differentiate, like you write about this really well in the novel about what it's like when Ibogaine is coming on and you have like a, a lot of times, like one of the signs that the Ibogaine is starting to come on is that you have auditory hallucinations. That's right. You yeah. start to hear like crickets. <laughs> it's a wild. Yeah. Or Bees, like, um, swarms, you hear things swarming and they start far away. And you're kind of like, is that a, do you think that, that that's like the oral hallucination or is that real? You know, you start, you kind of, cause you're kind of like, it's so far away. It's really hard to tell. And then eventually they're in the room with you and they're everywhere. And it's like, sort of like 
at some point it stops being outside your head and it goes inside your head. And that's the point at which if you close your eyes and it goes inside, then you're in. You're and in. the trip is going. And you know what I mean? You're on it. I remember feeling like a little... Like it's just like a little like I expected like boom, you know, and instead it just kind of was like somebody cracked the the soda and uh, suddenly it was fizzling and I was fizzling and I was in the trip, you know, and I was like, okay, now I'm now I'm tripping. Um, whereas DMT is not like that. It's DMT is what I've never done DMT. So what does that mean? You just like you smoke it and all of a sudden it's just like you're in like a light tunnel flying at like Mach three or what, what is it? I you know? wish it was that simple. It was like, uh, basically somebody counts you down from 10, uh, after you, cause you, you smoke as much as you can until like literally until your lungs are as full as they can get. And then when they're like, you can't literally can't take any more breath in, they have you hold it for 10 seconds. And at the end of the 10 seconds, you exhale. And by the time you exhale, it's like you're exhaling who you are. Um, when I heard the zero, I remember like all the, my skin and everything breaking into geometric shapes that were fitting together. And then those shapes started going kind of like into impossible 4D geometry. Like it just all, reality went bye-bye. And even like my concept of what time and space and matter are completely dissolved to the place where I remember my last gasp of holding on to who I was, I looked up at the shaman and I was like, am I okay? Cause I was like, I'm dying. You know, this is, this is something's wrong. And he was like, you're fine. You're going to be fine. And when he said that, I just remember, I just stretched my hands out and I just said like, okay, take me. Like I really was kind of almost ready to like, if this is it, if I'm dead now, just, just take me away from here. I don't, I don't want to do it anymore. This is too much pain. You know, it was really like, I had been through so much and I had seen so many horrible things the night before that I was just like, just take me if you're going to take me, you know? So this was and the day after you came down from Ibogaine. They give you the it's DMT. It's like almost three days later. Okay. But yeah, relatively close. Pretty close. Yeah. And it's like I a, had... It's like a palate cleanser. It's an amuse bouche. <laughs> it's, it's like a nice little uh, sorbet, you know? Yeah. Sor- <laughs> sorbetto of, <laughs> of human I mean, suffering. No. Uh, uh, <laughs> wow. But, uh, but it was it was immediate... You know, I blasted off as soon as I said I accepted it. Uh, I was sort of united with this kind of what I really felt was some essence of me uh, pulled out of me and I could see it. I could see the essence of me. And it was sort of this like purple, like the purple was the pain and the white was like the kind of life. And the purple was like the pain part of me, the part of me that hurt. And the part of me that hurt was so much darker than the rest of me, like the pain that I was that was my essence was so much deeper than anything else, any of the light in me. And what I remember was the universe or God or whatever being like, Oh, he's a good one. Like, you know, almost like being like, that's how you do it. You get in there and you live that pain. You know what I mean? Like get in there go like you did it. Good job. And it like flew out and it joined this big pink glowing orb that was like all of humanity and all of, time and all of God and all of everything. And, um, when I saw like myself being joined with that, everything, I just, I just cried so hard because I was so happy. Like I cried so hard. Cause I was like, Oh, everything that I thought was like horrible about life is like this beautiful, I get to be part of existence. Like existence is so beautiful. I can't believe that I was like stressing and sweating all this stuff when it's like, this is it. Like the stress and the sweat, it's part of the fun of life. You know, it's like, 
living, you know, really being attached to the good and the bad is like, what an intense experience, you know? Boy. Um, and then you come out of it. You come out of it. There are people listening right now in their cars or whatever who've never done this that are just like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, you know, smoke some DMT and get back to us, right? <laughs> like, I'm sure, like, like, the thing about it is, again, it's like, it, it's inarguable. And it, it's also, I mean, for all of the difficulties that led you to these moments, I'll pose it as a question. Do you feel grateful for having had these psychedelic experiences? I, I have to imagine you do, right? Like what would, I mean, even like addiction aside, what would it be like to go mm. through your whole life and to never have tasted a psychedelic experience? I find that sad to contemplate. Like I know that some people have like psychological issues that sort of like, you know, foreclose on any kind of psychedelic experience. That I mm. get. But if you're somebody who doesn't have that and you're just like, nah, I don't want to try that. That's like, Really? You don't want to like, I don't know. I guess it's not for everybody, but I just feel like it's mm. so, it's so wild and it's so hard to share and articulate after the fact. And it's so life affirming in the strangest way. And it really feels essential to me. Does it feel mm. essential to you in that way? For me, yeah. For my temperament, it's something that I, I definitely needed and I definitely value in a huge way. And I think it's it helped save my life. It helped me save my life, you know, seeing it from this vantage point. And it makes me more, it makes me more connected to my life. It makes me more grateful for my life than I had ever been before. I think I had sort of just, you know, I had sort of like, you wake up and then you're in your life and that's kind of it. And it's weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everything is hard. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, well, I don't know. I guess I like life. What else is, what else you got? Yeah, what, are, what are my life? options? What are my options? Yeah, <laughs> not, not a whole lot of options here. I kind of, so, uh, but it made me go, wow, this is like, you know, the 10,000 things. There's like, it's what a, what a, what an unbelievably beautiful place, despite all the, the breakdown of the beauty, you know, around us. And I don't know, it, it is a weird thing. You know, it is so essential that it's like telling people about it is kind of like a, a hubristic thing to do, I guess, in some ways, but I do think that yeah, it can be insufferable to be the guys who's like, you got to do ayahuasca, man. You know, like I, you yeah, know. yeah, it is, it is, and like you know, I think I I tried really hard to make the book not just sort of like a you know tripping, bro. What's up, Burning right, Man? Yeah. Check it out. This shit's, <laughs> this shit's crazy, bro. Check it right. out. And, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's it's just I do think you can see it as a, a device there's so many devices in fiction that are just like world shattering devices and i think you know you got to be careful how you employ stuff like that because you know anything can get old and get boring and get weird and instead you're trying to like emphasize how beautiful existence is and how unique and rare each story is that gets told you know so it's i don't know I don't know. I really, I loved, I loved writing about it. I loved living in the world and getting to relive the experience over and over again as I got it closer to being something of merit to me, you know, whatever, however strange that sounds. And, and when it was done and when I knew that this was it and like everybody that I was working with on the book said, this is it. Like this book, I'm not saying this book is a great book, but this book is at its best. You will never have a version of this book that's better than the version that you have right now. So it's done. And I felt 
this huge sense of loss that I didn't get to live in this world anymore, you know? <laughs> and that it was, it was such an, it was extreme. And I, we used to have this thing with, uh, the band, you know, where you finish a record and it is your record until it comes out and then you never hear it the same. When other people have heard it and judged it, you never hear it the same. But I, as soon as I sent it off to be printed or done or whatever, that it was over. Like I didn't live in the world anymore. That world was closed to me. You know, the, the page was between us. And uh, yeah, it was, it was strange. <laughs> it's nice. It's nice to live in a book, like the part of the book that you live in where you're at the end of the process of writing it where you really know you've pretty much got it almost done Mm -hmm. and you've sort of figured it out at that point that's a love that's like the best stage yeah (laughs) you know uh better than the beginning you know or even like the weird middle where you're lost and having to redraft and you feel like it's you know irreversibly fucked and all that kind of stuff but man that last you know that last stage is a nice place to be and it is sort of sad to see it go but also like you know, uh, happy to share it with people, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I, I love sharing stuff. And I don't even mind people not liking it or not understanding it because it's just, there's just different stuff for everybody. You know what I mean? There's all kinds. Of, and I love, there aren't many kinds of art that I don't like. I'm just like an omnivore when it comes to different kinds of novels. I like, I like novels of manners and I like mysteries and I like uh, psychological stuff. And I just like, very very small surreal novel you know what i mean i just i just love it all so for me it's like if somebody doesn't get it then they just they didn't they didn't like it you know what i mean it's not it's not for them it's not for them it's not a it's not a value judgment and i feel like this gets this gets confused too much of the time where people i think attach a sense of morality or like rightness or wrongness to what essentially is just their opinion or their preference when it comes to what they like to read or what they like to consume when it comes to art. And it drives me a little bit crazy. I see this, I mean, maybe I'm sensitive to it because I write, I've written a book in this mode, but like I see this with autofiction all the time where people are like, yeah, man, fuck autofiction. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I like to write books where, you know, I'm not in it. And it's like, what? Like, of course Nobody you're in it. books where they're not in it. That's yeah. what I'm saying. I'm like, I want to, I want, I have not yet responded. I've sort of held my tongue, but I want to be like, hey, dipshit. All, yeah. all art is auto art. All fiction is auto fiction. It's just a matter of degrees. And if you don't like to read books that are like, you know, close to the author's experience, personal experience, that's okay. That's just mm-hmm. your preference. But don't like, don't condemn that mode. I feel like it's maybe the oldest mode of fiction is for a writer to like lightly fictionalize their personal experience. This is not new. <laughs> no, I also think um, autofiction in some ways is more removed. I think that like it's really easy to put yourself into a character who's not you, but to have to think of yourself as a character, to have to think of yourself as a character who is not you in order to put in some experience that you've had is like a second layer of fiction that you're putting on top of it. Whereas like, if you just put your experience into a character, it's like, you're just slotting it in. And that's cool. I love that too. You know what I mean? Like that's really, but I actually think it's almost like doubly hard in some ways to put your own experience into a character who has your name and face, you know, uh, because there's some assumption that this is the real you and that's, ridiculous you know well, and it's also there's also like maybe more personal risk involved you're more exposed 
Hmm. Uh, right? I mean, do you feel a sense of exposure like when you're writing in this mode or do you feel like you're embedded in there or fictionalized enough that you're like, eh, if anybody actually thinks this is me, then they're mistaken? Yeah, I don't I don't really feel as exposed. It's like, sure, some of that stuff happened and some of some of that stuff is, it's Jeff from the band Thursday, so you think you know him. But I, I always feel like people think they know me through all my art and uh, they often don't, you know what I mean? So it's just kind of like, okay, if that makes you feel like you know me better than you, than you do, that's fine for you to take that away. But I don't feel any, I don't feel like you know me any more than you do. You know what I mean? You haven't gone to the bakery with me and had like seven croissants in the morning that's how you know people really know me when they do that you know <laughs> um, seven seven croissants every morning oh, is man. A... <laughs> not every morning but my partner works at liza from the book she works in food she has a documentary series on food and so when we try foods like it's we go so deep it's yeah. like it's, it's big so that's my that's my normal like that's you look like you, you, know you look like you have a high metabolism i think it's like I you, wish. Know, you can pro you can process it <laughs> that was the hardest thing about quitting heroin you know it's like you, you get chubby because oh, you right. stay so skinny on heroin so like you know i'd, I'd talk to other friends that would be like i don't want to quit like i got a photo shoot and he's like oh you don't want the fat face <laughs> no i don't i don't want the fat face i want the skinny face uh but you know after a couple of years sober you, you get there's all kinds of different you get obsessed with working out you get obsessed with weird diets it's just you need to turn your obsessions into something else you know right. so it it all happens for me. It was like perfume was one of my big ones. I got obsessed with perfume. Well, I was going like to say you wrote you form. you wrote that. Well, your dad's a chemist, and you wrote this mm-hmm. book. You'd have like a different perfume. You'd sit down to write in the morning with your coffee, and then it's almost like aromatherapy or something, right? You would put a new scent, like you dab a new scent on your arm, and it would. Mm. What does that do? Like, because I have not heard that. That is something new for me. Is somebody using yeah. aromas to help like stimulate the creative process? It's almost like a different outfit, you know, it's like some of them, like the icy green ones, you know, they, they feel extremely like a, like a coat of armor that I could put on. So I'm, I'm unflappable, you know, and then there's ones that are more, more vulnerable and beautiful. And, and those ones I would put on if I'm feeling more sensitive, some of them evoke like countrysides and they're aggressive. Other ones are quite urban and, and. So, you know, the thing that I also really love about a good perfume has three stages and it's like an art, it's an artwork of time and the different evaporation curves of the different materials have lifespans that are changing. And so these different relationships and some materials last longer than others. So it starts out as like a bergamot and, and, you know, hay, and then it moves to like the hay actually becomes part of a tobacco accord with the spices in the heart. And then at the end, it's like a resin. And I just love this changing. It's a lot like music in so many ways. The notes aren't able to stay in one configuration. So they have to keep sliding into new configurations and the way you use those, they call them chords, you know, or accords and perfumery. And um, it just, it just really engages my mind and makes me think about time. I really like, I really think that that's what perfume is. It's the art of time. And I think about how useful time is in every art form, you know, fiction and, uh, <laughs> so that's yeah, the most, most beautiful thing I've ever heard said about perfume in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I always thought about it like, man, this is really strong. I need to get off this elevator. That's about the extent of my experience with perfume, but yeah. when they're done right and, you know, experienced judiciously, be delightful like so do you wear any kind of cologne or scent on a regular basis 
Uh, I I really change what I'm wearing. I'm part of forums where I like log what I'm wearing every day and I see how much I wore different things. I have hundreds of scents between samples and bottles and stuff. So, um, but yeah, I try not to in public. I try not to go too, too aggressive. I'll keep something that's more personal that stays within like this radius right here. If you're like, if you're in a hug radius, you can smell what I smell like. Um, whereas on stage, sometimes if I'm feeling like aggressive, I have like, there's one, uh, there's one leather that I have that's like extremely like tough a leather, leather, a leather scent. Yeah, leather scent, and um, it's by this great perfumer, uh, Christophe Laudmiel, and he's like a sort of like a bad boy of perfumery. You know, he's like a <laughs> the he's bad got, boy of perfumer. <laughs> yeah, he's got like a little mohawk, and his dog has the same mohawk and stuff. Uh-huh. You know, he's really he's such a great character, uh, and such a brilliant perfumer. But this one is just it's wonderful. It's like such a intense, intense leather. And it has also fresh and nice notes. So if you're further away, it's not, but up close, it's like really aggressive. And that makes sometimes on stage, if I just want to be like, nobody can touch me, you know, nobody can come near me because I have this tough leather exterior on, then I put it on and I kind of feel like I embody that spiritually, you know, well, maybe I should start wearing that when I do the podcast. I mean, come on. Yeah. I have awful. some that Liza won't let me come to bed with. Uh, she says no ouds before bed. You know, she says some of them smell like like literal barnyards, like literal diarrhea. Like don't, you can't put that on before bed, or you're, or you're sleeping on the couch again. And I've done that <laughs> a bunch in the past. Well, I uh, I always ask people before I let them go if they're working on anything new. If you've got another book in the works, it's fine. If not, this is the we should mention. Uh, you know, someone who isn't me is the inaugural title of the Rose Books imprint. Uh, which is helmed by our mutual friend Chelsea Hudson, also a past guest on this program. So congrats on being the uh, the maiden voyage for that press, the book club pick. And I'm just wondering, is this something you're going to keep doing? I hope to. I mean, you know, five years of writing this book, five hours a day, five days a week. You know, that's thousands of hours that I spent learning how to write this book. And I said, well, I guess at least I know how to write it now you know i know how to write a book now uh monica said well you know how to write this book you're gonna have to learn how to write the next one and that's extremely intimidating you know that is a lot more work than i've ever done on an album like at least five times as much work as i've ever done on my most arduous album for something that is much more limited in in what in the amount of people who could appreciate it you know i think you can hear a song generally and be like oh yeah there's something to it there's a lot of different things for different people some people relate emotionally some people just like that it's loud and nasty some people like the aggressive nature you know there's all these different angles that you can come to music from but a book is like you really have to be in this you have to be along for the ride with me you have to be all the way in you know what i mean and that's uh it's intimidating but it's just an art form that I love. So I'm working on something. It's not a novel. It's like more of a short story. And it's I'm finding it very hard, you know, to switch to third person past tense, like a totally new. I want to do something different. You know, that's always the artist that I've been is I just want to try something new, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope to keep writing. I don't know how successful I'll be with it. This really feels like I won't ever write anything like this again. You know, I can't imagine how you would unless you. repeat the cycle which we don't want to do (laughs) no uh but i have loved talking with you and loved reading your book and kind of getting to experience like this very harrowing but also like life-affirming ride that you have been on and i think it'll be 
meaningful to a lot of readers, whether they've struggled with opiate addiction or not. It's a, I mean, it's also just like a hell of a story, right? I mean, the, to go through mm. something like this is not common. It's not the common human, mm. you know, it's like, what did you do last month? You know, like, well, yeah, I went down to Mexico, <laughs> yeah. went down to Mexico and, you know, basically confronted all of my demons, you know, while being in a, a state of ataxia, like that's not normal. <laughs> well, uh, under a weighted blanket in a Mexican, you know, treatment center. So kudos to you for all of the work that you did on this book, all of the work that you did on yourself so that you could write this book. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. And I'm glad we got to, uh, you know, shine a little light on it with the, uh, with the show and with the book club. Brad, it's, it's been such a pleasure being on here. And, you know, I've, I've loved this podcast since I heard Chelsea on it. And I'm so honored to be in the book club and, and to be engaged by such thoughtful listeners and readers. Uh, it really is kind of a dream. So thanks. Okay, you guys, there we have it. That was Jeff Rickley, author of the debut novel, Someone Who Isn't Me, available right now from Rose Books. It is the official July pick of the Other People Book Club. You can find Jeff on social media. He's on Twitter and Instagram. His music is all over the place. His band Thursday, his other band No Devotion, so check that out. One more time, the book is called Someone Who Isn't Me. It is available in trade paperback. Get your copy at rosebooks.co. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. If you're interested in signing up for the Other People Book Club, joining the book club, you can do that at otherppl.com slash book hyphen club. As well, if you would like to join the Other People Patreon community, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to get an Other People t-shirt, you can get one over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. And if you have a minute, I would be grateful if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen. Give it a rating, write a quick review if that's an option. It helps the show in the algorithm. All right? If you want to email me, the address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, I have a novel out. My latest novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so if you want to check out my latest offering, again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up next on the program, there will be a new flashback episode on Friday and Sunday. My guest is TBD at this stage. It's a mystery. So stay tuned.